Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Scholarship on the German philosopher Martin Heidegger has traditionally focused on his magnum opus, Being in Time, and related earlier work. His later essays and lectures often relegated to an ambiguous later period that many consider philosophically insubstantial, or simply too esoteric and obscure to merit any serious engagement. Luckily, that is starting to change, especially with the publication of the Black Notebooks as well as a number of manuscripts, essays, and lectures from this period. These texts are starting to give us insight into Heidegger's philosophical development, helping us understand old texts in new light and trace the development of various themes from throughout his life with greater detail. Joining me to discuss some of these developments is my guest today, Daniela Vallega Noy, here with her recent book, Heidegger's Poetic Writings, From Contributions to Philosophy to the Event. Looking at Heidegger's writing from roughly 1936 to 1942, Villega Noy's text is an excellent guide through this incredibly difficult period of Heidegger's thinking. She works to unpack key terms, guiding us through difficult translations, and showing us how Heidegger was always trying to do something rather unique in attuning us to hidden philosophical and linguistic baggage. The book follows not only the explicit content of Heidegger's texts, but also their underlying spirit, partaking in a sustained attempt to cultivate an attuned understanding to ourselves and our history, subtly shifting our attention and what it even means to be attentive in the hopes of pointing towards an elusive understanding of being that somehow always remains just beyond our reach. Daniela Villeganoy is a professor of philosophy at the University of Oregon. In addition to Heidegger's poetic writings, she is also the author of The Bodily Dimension in Thinking and Heidegger's Contributions to Philosophy. She is also one of the co-translators of Indiana University Press's 2012 translation of Heidegger's Contributions to Philosophy of the Event. Daniela Velega Noy, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of these. So could you maybe tell us a bit about yourself and what your research tends to focus on? Sure. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Oregon. Um, I have uh, worked a lot on Heidegger. I've published three books uh, on Heidegger. But I have a background also, let's say, in classical uh, Western philosophy more broadly, history of philosophy, um, I specialize in also phenomenology and deconstruction, and uh, I'm interested besides a certain focus uh, I have on Heidegger's work in the in the 30s, especially. Um, I have another strand of research um, that is more has a more phenomenological bent, where I am interested in questions of time and embodiment, and I've published in that area as well. Excellent. So before turning to your text specifically and the exegetical work that 
makes up the majority of your text. Let's start with some context. You are going to be covering Heidegger's philosophical developments from around 1936 to 1941, a very philosophically transitional period for him as he tries to overcome some of the tensions in his earlier work and move towards something new, although at the time he wasn't quite sure yet. So before getting to that, could you tell us a bit more about the background of this period for Heidegger? What was going on in his life at the time that should be kept in mind while reading and studying this period of his life? Sure. So this period is is after that <laughs> the famous period where uh, Heidegger became rector of uh, the University um, of Freiburg, um, and where he tried to merge uh, his his thinking of uh, the possibility of another beginning with uh, with with the German history that was going on at that time. So the period that I start uh, is a period where I, he got disillusioned about the possibility of, of concrete change or uh, at that time. And it is more a, a period where he turns inward and he writes uh, a lot. Uh, he writes uh, a number of uh, um, manuscripts, uh, not manuscripts or notes that are gathered here under, under these, uh, what I call his poetic writings. He writes also other notes that have a more political connotation that are more reflections on his times that he calls the black uh, notebooks or that are called the black notebooks now. Um, And he is lecturing, especially on Nietzsche, um, and which is an occasion for him to, I think, reflect on on uh, on his times, on our times, um, and these uh, these lectures contain also uh, a lot of uh, hidden critiques uh, of of uh, what he saw the national socialist movement becoming. Um, that was not where he wanted it uh, to go. So Nietzsche lectures are very prominent um, during that time. And um, in terms, there's something like an internal history, which is not the outward history of those times that I trace in my book, where you can see a very clear shift in mood, in the fundamental mood of his thinking. And it is interesting that it, this is right around uh, the outbreak of, of World War II, 1939. There's a little, there's a turning point. And uh, so there is a, is a let's say, a, a movement away from a more Nietzschean pathos, from a language that emphasizes decision, um, the empowerment of being, to a, a language that emphasizes notions of poverty, of stillness, of following. So it's on the way to this thinking more in terms of releasement. Excellent. So... Heidegger's work in this period you're trying to cover is notorious for its highly unsystematic style. It takes the form of meditations and essays, short little snippets and aphorisms, and words that involve odd spellings and unique combinations. This, however, speaks to what Heidegger is trying to do, cultivate a sense of the limitations of our current mode of being and prepare us for this other beginning. So can you speak to Heidegger's more elusive and perhaps mystical style at this point in time and how it fits with what he's trying to accomplish? Sure. Um, So the task for him... (laughs) 
what he wants to evoke and not only think is is being being to be right there is being so he found that uh, the language of being in time didn't allow him to get there it didn't allow him to really speak of being in a way that w- would evoke a sense of being so the task then is to find a thinking and language that is evocative of being that does not simply speak about being um, so it is a, a the attempt to get away from a representational thinking where I objectify what I want to speak about. And instead, it is the attempt to speak out of a sense of being. Um, I like to, with my students, I like to, to use the example of creative writing, right? Creative writing. So where the task is not to, to write about anything, but to hook up to something like an, an attunement, um, Usually it's a sense of lack, a sense of bothering, something pressing. And just to stick to this attunement and try to articulate it uh, in a certain way, there's a, there's a, there's a certain blindness in, in that and not knowing what will, what will, what will come out. So this is, it is, it is in this, it, this is the reason, right, as I'm trying to, to speak uh, myself from, from a sense of being without any presupposition. This is why he ends up speaking uh, in, in ways that often uh, defy uh, grammar, uh, that defy German grammar. It also has to do with how he wants to convey certain movements of thinking, right, movements of thinking, tensions in thinking, um, that cannot be expressed in our usual subject, predicate, object uh, um, uh, grammar. A key theme that runs through much of Heidegger's writings in the period you're discussing is history, more specifically in German, Geschichte, as opposed to Historie or historiography. It's in this mode of historical inquiry that he tries to cultivate an understanding of history that involves what he calls a first beginning that is now reaching its end. And now we're living in a turning for which an other beginning is needed. Can you unpack this understanding of history Heidegger has here? Yes. So he differentiates Geschichte from Historie. So Historie would be a looking at history as a a series of facts, and it would be a looking at history as a linear development. Geschichte, um, as Heidegger thinks, is thinks history again from within, from within the happening of history. So it is difficult for us to think uh, this transition from the first beginning to the other beginning, to think it in a way that is not linear, because we immediately think first beginning Greeks, right? Second beginning Germans, perhaps, or not, uh, for Heidegger, uh, which is another question. So, But Heidegger tries to think more out of how one finds oneself in a moment of history, and tries to bring this to expression. It is finding oneself into in a moment of decision, a decision over history. That's the most important part uh, for Heidegger. So in, 
this is another uh, way I try to, to help my students to approach Heidegger. Um, so think, I say, think of the real decisions in, in your life, in fun decisions that really change fundamentally your life. It could have to do with falling in love. It would, could have to do with deciding to move away. Um, how in these important decisions we don't have really the sense that we are making the decision, but we kind of hang in there, right, in between, not knowing what will be, and yet still with some kind of sense of intimation that there is a change, right, there is something coming. And this is the space in which Heidegger writes. This is his understanding of, of history. So the other inception is the sense of the, the coming and the, the, the or other beginning. And the, and the first beginning would be that, that uh, what has been, right, that is also uh, still there. And so he attempts to write from history in decision. To start unpacking a specific text, you turn to the Contributions to Philosophy of the Event, which is a series of passages and aphorisms that can range from a couple sentences to a couple pages at a time. One of the core pillars of your interpretation of the contributions is what you call the fundamental attunement of the text. So where being in time centered angst as the fundamental attunement, the contribution center restraint, an attunement that gains some specificity when you contrast it with the demands of machination to grasp and control. So can you unpack restraint here? Sure. So the German word for restraint is Verhaltenheit. Um, it has for uh, Heidegger, again, an implicit historical dimension uh, that wasn't present in that same way in, in Angst, right? The fundamental attunement in, in, um, in being in time. Still, there's a similar element to what opens, what opens up in this attunement. Um, you find delight in angst, right? In, in angst, you find to this sudden displacement from everydayness and a kind of opening up of a, of a strange sense of being. Now, restraint is only one of the names that Heidegger uh, gives to this attunement that he calls the attunement uh, in transition to the other beginning and sometimes the attunement um, of um, the other beginning. Um, there is an element in it that is shock, right? Erschrecken, shock. Um, it, um, it, I contrast it as well with uh, the wonder of the Greeks, right? In Greek, there is the wonder of being. Uh, beings show themselves, shine. There is the wonder, the questioning of being. But in our epoch, Heidegger says, Beings, things, events have been abandoned. Right? There is a fundamental sense of, of lack. And that is normally, usually ignored, that is not felt. So first, uh, what is fundamental to restraint is first, first there is this element of shock um, about the fact that beings are abandoned, right? That 
in another uh, word sometimes or other way uh, Heidegger expresses it is to say there is no world. The world is gone. There is no world. Uh, everything is uh, um, just in this machinery of calculation, production, where things are emptied out to, to mere placeholders for uh, productivity. So shock is a fundamental mode. And in this shock, opens up an experience of being, an epochal experience of being of Heidegger, of, of withdrawal, uh, of lack. Now, the task there is to stay with this lack, and that's where the restraint comes uh, uh, in, to hold oneself in relation to that lack, to keep that wound open, so to speak, and to speak from that space, from that in-between. And it is here that Heidegger finds at the same time this beckoning or an intimation um, like uh, going back to the decision, uh, a, a to come, right? That that uh, he attempts to to prepare, to hold open. In this space is what he calls again Dasein. So I just want to emphasize that whereas Dasein in being and time primarily means human being, in contributions he writes it with a dash. It means like like uh, it is not primarily human. It requires the human right to 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 uh, dwells in this opening, in this opening of of a withdrawal, but it is not primarily a human uh, 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 time space. It's not a, a, a human there, right? It is a, a there that that um, exposes uh, um, much more than just a human being. Turning to Heidegger's work, Mindfulness, or in German, Besinung, one of the first things you note is that while they are written in this rather poetic style, Heidegger warns that these are not poems and instead uses terms such as binding and gathering to explain what he's trying to do here. And you also add that the German term Besinung uh, itself also gives us some hints at what he's trying to do in this text. So can you unpack what's going on with these words and what is maybe getting lost in some of the translations here? Yes. Um, so Besinnung um, starts with a few thinking points and then it continues kind of with the same style as contributions to philosophy, the same kind of uh, uh, passages that could be more, more or less coherent, that could be outlines, that could be longer reflections. Um, so the German word uh, Besinnung has a sense of, of inwardness, of gathering oneself, a letting go of daily affairs. Um, it is also used in the context of, um, of let's say, one, one's kind of, one has been lost in doing things, and certainly there is a moment of of uh, of realization, right? Uh, uh, a moment of um, reflection where one one finds oneself again, right? Uh, of course, Heidegger never wants to have just a subjective connotation there. For him, this this besinnung, which I would prefer to tra translate more like a, as a meditation, this uh, meditation is a meditation on. Um, being as it, it happens in our times, as it leads to this kind of prevalence of machination, um, 
as it leads to a forgetfulness of thinking, but it is also a meditation on the roots of that for Heidegger that he sees in, in ancient Greece and in a certain way in which being happens as a certain present thing. Um, and so that, that what gains prevalence are, are, are things and beings and the very temporal sense of being. And more than the just sense of presence, it's the sense of absencing, the sense of concealment that gets lost. And so this, this, these meditations are not like Descartes' meditations on an inward subjectivity, but meditations on how, uh, how this epochal sense of being uh, comes by, right? And, and how, how one finds oneself um, in, in, in these times. Heidegger's understanding of history here involves uh, what is often called machination that unfolds as a sort of violence. Against this, he contrasts sovereignty and decision, which at first glance doesn't seem like a real contrast, although you clarify that for Heidegger, the violence he's talking about is a sort of cutting off from making a decision and instead wants to help return to us a sense of being able to make a historical decision. So can you unpack what he's trying to get at here? Machination uh, has two meanings in Heidegger. Um, it has a larger sense and a more narrow sense. So in the larger sense, uh, machination is, is a certain um, way um, in which the very the meaning of being or um, gets uh, um, embedded in in the notion of makeability. So uh, this happens there, there. Although there's some roots for him there in ancient Greece, it happens especially for him in in the Middle Ages, where um, we understand uh, things as being created, beings as being created. Uh, and then there's the, in the turn to subjectivity, this createdness, this being made, uh, is transposed into subjectivity. Huh? We think it can't. Uh, um, um, things or uh, objects are constituted in in relation uh, uh, to um, subjectivity. In a more narrow sense, machination is the the what what Heidegger understands as like the end phase of metaphysics, where we would be now. That means where there's been a certain culmination of an emptying out. Um, of beings and emptying out. I like to think of that, especially in relation to, to Nietzsche, um, who speaks of how the how the true world became a fable, right? We we start with the Greeks, where there's still a, a, a sense, and uh, a strong sense of life, of embodying one ideals, and then ideas become emptied out of their juice until uh, there's nothing left. So where we are now in machination is precisely in the predominance of calculation, productivity. Um, symptoms he finds there is the massive uh, velocity. Everything has to be faster. Everything has to be accessible to everyone, uh, everybody, etc. So the way he thinks is, is that we are caught in machination. Yeah, it's not a human doing. It's like we are compelled to be part of this machine. We find ourselves 
compelled to be part of this machinery of, of productivity that he also develops in relation to Nietzsche's notion of, of will to power and will to will. So in that sense, there's no decision, right? Because we, we are caught in, the, in, in this machinery. Now, Heidegger, yes, he emphasizes decision. And I, and I must again say there's more decisionism. Right? There's a stronger language of decision in, in the earlier uh, poetic writings, as I call them, than in the later ones. Um, yes, and there is, there is a certain danger there, I would say, um, in Heidegger's decisionism, as I will, may, may call it, the sense of uh, that he is like perhaps the only one who really is able to think this other beginning, the necessity of another beginning, um, although others may intimate it um, as well. So there's a little bit of a sense of a higher destiny. On the other hand, on the other hand, it, it is clear for Heidegger that he cannot make the decision. As I said before, he finds himself in this decision that he cannot make. Right? He learned. Uh, uh, he learned that he he could not uh, actively in, uh, uh, build towards a certain revolution. Right? That would re- lead to another sense of being, to new possibilities of existing. And violence. Yes. Um, there's more to say be said there, but uh, I want to keep uh, this answer a little. Brief. <laughs> so I'll stop here. Um, yeah, so moving along, in some of the later volumes you cover, Heidegger's thoughts on the future become sort of mixed. Earlier, he sketches out several possibilities, some where we would slowly descend into this greater machination, eventually losing our capacity to resist it, while in others, people might finally hit a wall and turn around to usher in another beginning. However, as things move along, he eventually develops a sort of synthesis of these two options. On the one hand, he's skeptical of people ushering in on other beginning anytime soon, but he does feel that some people may start to pick up on his sense of history and start doing work largely in isolation to try and cultivate a preparedness for the other beginning. Can you unpack this development in his thinking? Yes. So there is a section in uh, the volume uh, Besinno Mindfulness, it's section 70, where he speaks of these three possibilities of history. Um, And to repeat again, so the first is, which is a true possibility for Heidegger, is that machination keeps rolling on. And so that that we... Continue to remain caught, right, in in machination. That there is no way out. That there that the space of decision doesn't open up for a people. Then, of course, there is this notion that there may happen another in inception, another beginning for a people. That's for important for Heidegger. It's not just for an individual, but for a people. And so something like another beginning that would have the same strength as, as uh, thinking of and being of the Greeks for, for another epoch. But I think Heidegger, Heidegger moves towards more towards this third possibility, which I, I don't know if I would call it a synthesis, but the idea is that, well, machination will continue going on and doing its thing, and most people 
most people will will live um, in in guided uh, by machination, but there will be more and more single ones, right? Who, at the same time, are differently have a different sense of being, um, cultivate a, a, a another relation to the world, and. I want to tie this to uh, an interesting shift um, that between um, that's in the writings that span from 36 to 40, and then the writings of 40 and 40, uh, 142, it actually goes to 42, which is it are called uh, Über den Anfang on Inception and the Event. All of a sudden, um, there, there is a change in, in Heidegger's thinking of machination. So whereas in the earlier works, we get the sense how one needs to dwell in this sense of withdrawal, um, one needs to uh, resist, right, this withdrawal, there's, there's language, a certain language of resistance. Um, in On Inception and in the event, he starts speaking of letting machination pass by. Let it just letting it roll on, do its thing, not resisting it. Uh, and at the same time, thinking and being with another sense of being that holds itself especially in relation to the sense of, of concealment, um, certain even emptiness, a certain sense of emptiness in relation to which one can begin to, to nurture um, a, a, another way of being, another way of, of relating, another way of, of finding um, things um, happening. One of the terms you just mentioned in your last answer was inception. And so we can, I guess, move on to one of the later volumes you discuss on inception, Uber den Anfang. But you connect the term Anfang with catching. Although Heidegger is trying to do something really difficult with this term in asking what is doing the catching and cultivating what you call a middle voice, since the usual language of activity and passivity are inadequate for what he's trying to do. So can you unpack uh, what you see going on here? Yes. In, in some way, um, this it is not that different, <laughs> or it is still a thinking, uh, thinking the event. Um, let me let me try to say a little bit more about this by going back to this um, creative writing um, example. So I'm trying to write about nothing, but out of a sense of out of an attunement, out of something that is pressing, and that is not something yet. That is nothing articulate yet. That is only as it becomes articulated. So the way he, he, he speaks of this as what he calls the turning in the event, the way he uh, describes this in contributions, using a little bit of the language of um, um, being in time, is to say that the thinking finds oneself responding to a call catching up on something that is thrown 
to it. Now, so as I hook on to what is not yet something articulated, but presses to be articulated, it becomes a word, right? It, it, uh, it uh, uh, is, right? The experience is, it is said. Um, so it is still that same relation, but Heidegger tries to go more and more away from thinking um, in terms of there's being that calls and the and the thinking that responds because that still puts up in puts us in in easily lets us slip into kind of a duality as as if being were over there and I'm here right and he he empties out uh, he he it's really an attempt to move more and more away from human subjectivity from this self reflexive moment that may be there in thinking there is awareness but there's no self reflection so it is then speaking without a sense of oneself without self reflection but still in latching on the word anfangen yeah fangen means to to catch so it is catching on to what gives itself to thought, right? what what presses to be said, and uh, <laughs> what is to be said is 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 no thing, is nothing in that sense in Heidegger, which which makes it so difficult to to follow uh, to follow his thinking there. Right? It is rather trying to speak the first dawning, right, of an is, before you get to say, oh, the tree is, there is first an is, an opening, a clearing, an opening, clearing is how he speaks of it. And so how do I speak of the dawning of that is? And then he wants to speak of that by by, uh, um, holding open the sense of the unsayable, the sense of the a fundamental concealment. Um, so to to not lose that dimension of the of the unsayable uh, as a sense of being and an is of whatever is arises. In the final volume you address, simply titled The Event or Das Eregnis, you draw attention again to some of Heidegger's wordplay, which again gets lost in translation. So the event also shows up in the title for the contributions to philosophy of the event uh, in Volma Eregnis, but it also connects back to being in time where a key term was authenticity or eigentlich. Uh, but you also connect it to around 10 or so other words, such as appropriating, appropriation, consignment, assignment, properness, and appropriateness, all of which have a lot more uh, uh, similarity in the German. So what is Heidegger trying to do by centering the event within all of these terms? And what is he trying to draw our attention towards here? Well, let me start by saying that he is not trying to draw our attention <laughs> that's that's part of the of the shock well what was for me was almost shocking when i started reading the event there's this there's this line right the sentence here's what he says only the pure word that rests in itself must resonate no listener must be presupposed and no room for a listening belonging okay so he's speaking without presupposing a listener. That's like uh, that's like 
how do you do that, right? It's like like your questions draw out what what I'm saying. So, but how to speak not with a listening mind? Why does he want to do that? Because then he would have to translate, as I'm doing right now. He would have to translate uh, his thought into ready-made concepts that people already understand, but then they would not understand what he's trying to think. So he's trying to think then without an, an audience. There's a strange solitude solitude in this, in this thinking um, of Heidegger's. And as I said, he was more and more trying to, to speak of the very arising of, of a, a, a sense of, of being, right, in connection to this, this unseeable, this, this withdrawal. Now, in, in the event, often, so what does he hold on to? He cannot describe anything. So what he ends up holding on to is, is in thinking again, in attunement, he lets himself be guided by words, by language, by words. And he explores all the kind of semantic resonances within a word, right? And there's a lot of repetition, right? There's a lot of repetition in this speaking, right? As he, he delves back into this meditative um, space and tries to, to speak again of the coming to be, of the very speaking, um, so, and, and it also the fact that he speaks also, especially these all these cognates of Ereignis, Ereignung, Übereignung, Zueignung, Enteignung, right? These are all um, there. They are all. It's always trying to speak of this this inceptual event in all its different dimensions, and out of their relations appear, right? Uh, like the relations between humans and gods, right? The relation between um, um, world and and earth, um, and most fundamentally, the relation between being and beings, right? Between which uh, uh, which he addresses as initially as the ontological difference, <clears throat> but he he always thinks together, right? That's something people often forget. There is no being without beings, right? But the, 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 the attempt is to speak from a sense of being and not already with a, in view a being, a thing, an event as an object that I represent and that I speak about, right? So it is a, that's, that's part of perhaps um, an, an inner necessity for Heidegger to, to, um, to, to speak of the of the of the same happening but but looking at at different unfoldings of different relations I forgot the relation of the first and the other beginning also right maybe I will stop here for now um, we can go back to that if you would like to kind of pick that up and develop it um, we have plenty of time still left if you want to pick yeah. develop it yeah go ahead <laughs> Um, let me see. The, the the relation between the two beginnings, I think, is what you were working yes. to. Oh, yes, it's an important. Actually, there's an important part there um, because he 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 thinks inception. When he thinks inception, when he tries to think in inception, first and other beginning are not yet. 
differentiated. So he thinks from he thinks like he, also the differentiation of first and other beginning, right? and he calls so in. in there's the movement that he calls the movement that is a movement towards presencing, that would be the movement towards uh, metaphysics, right? The, pre- the, the, the showing of things. And then there's the movement um, that he calls Verwindung. Um, I think we still use the translation uh, twisting, twisting free, which he describes as a the movement of winding oneself into the movement of the event that I have been describing, right? This catching on to what gives oneself uh, um, um, to thought. And in some strange way, so he tries to dwell there, right, in this emptied out of of a sense of self, uh, a human self, um, emptied out and, 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 and circulating, finding some strange dwelling in this meditative um, space uh, that that always holds itself in relation to to the unsayable and so this is this is part of why why this thinking sounds so repetitive and gets so repetitive because it's, it's an exercise these are like meditative exercises of delving back again and again into this into this inceptual, um, more originary um, uh, sense um, of being. Let me call it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So moving right along and turning to Heidegger's politics, you suggest that part of the frustration with Heidegger's politics is his silence on his engagement with the Nazis after the war, but that his silence may testify to a certain feeling of impotence in the face of history. So this obviously connects with a lot of what we've been developing. So I want to ask what role a feeling of historical or political impotence may play in these writings. To what degree does he think we can resist machination versus uh, does he simply think we can simply quietly and patiently try and prepare the ground for some resistance down the road? And how should these questions affect how we read these texts here? Well, impotence, yes. <laughs> These open up the, the more, more, for me, more, more difficult um, aspects of Heidegger's thinking. Uh, Heidegger wants to, to separate right, his philosophy from, from something like what we would call personal life. Um, the attunements he speaks about are fundamental attunements. Um, but... Uh, Somehow, especially reading these these what I call his poetic writings, uh, really throws me back on the question of of Heidegger, right? Uh, Heidegger, the thinker, and not just the man, uh, uh, um, not just perhaps uh, the thinker. So. One the, the other problem I have, which makes it difficult for me to speak about this, is that I don't want to simply psychologize Heidegger. I don't think that's any good. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't lead us to a fruitful uh, engagement with Heidegger. But certainly, it, it is the case that in 33, 34, 
he thought he could bring his philosophy and his life together, right? He thought that he could lead on a movement of a fundamental revolution, right? Um, and it clearly uh, didn't work out. So there is a sense of an inability to affect change in any immediate way. So that resonates, certainly. And it has to do with this thought that uh, it is not, you know, again, I who make fundamental decisions, but fundamental decisions happen with me. The best I can do is be responsive, right, to, to, to what happens in the best way, in the best way possible. So the language becomes very tentative, um, in contribution. So all contributions to philosophy can do is prepare, Dasein, prepare a, a being there that then may allow something like concrete, or what we, we, we may call concrete transformation, uh, that a transformation where machination is, is no longer um, dominant, but where other possibilities of being um, open up. So um, I'm, I have a little suspicion, uh, though, in, in Heidegger, still in terms of the grand scale, right, at, at which he thinks, right, uh, like, <laughs> which we find also in Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche, who says it more overtly, <clears throat> the later Nietzsche and Etze Homo, yeah, <clears throat> with this title, How I Am a Destiny, right? <laughs> So Heidegger would not say how I am a destiny, but he certainly he certainly uh, believes uh, to be responding to a call and to be quite lonely in there, although there may be a few uh, a few others. And so there's a sense of of okay, he has not the power to act as rector of the university, but he can respond to this to this destiny, right? Um, and so it sounds, there are elements of what I may call an ascetic ideal, right? I give myself over to a higher power. It's the power of being itself, not mine. I'm just following, right? But I, I am the one who knows. I am the one who hears. Yeah, so there is a little bit of, of, of that element, uh, I think, in Heidegger. But I don't want to reduce this. I, this is the thing. You cannot reduce Heidegger. It's, there's a, there remains a certain ambiguity. And I think he says something true. Um, there are moments of, of saying something true or, 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 or speaking of how, how one, in fact, finds oneself, again, in in indecision, in, um, in, in changes, in, in fundamental changes, um, and, and has to respond to it, or how one is responsive, um, first of all. So another problem there, though, is, um, so this goes again towards my, my suspicion of, of, you know, this ascetic ideal that is active as well, uh, in, in Heidegger, I would say, is the way he speaks of knowing. And there's another ambiguity there in this notion of knowing. So there is 
although there's total blindness in some way, nobody knows how another inception would would look like if if it took shape, if if people if a people were to 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 change uh, fundamentally their the way of relating to things and to each other. He does speak of a a knowing, right? The knowing of the truth of being. The truth of being, which is nothing but the the revealing of how being occurs. So he speaks of knowing and of of steadfastness, inständigkeit. And this knowing is the same word uh, he uses in uh, in his uh, addresses uh, during his uh, Nazi period. It is not a cognitive knowing. It is more like an affective, emotional knowing, right? I know. Now, there is a lot of danger in this I know. Um, I'm thinking of religious fundamentalism, right? I know. I have the special connection to being there. I know. On the other hand, there is a way that one, one can say, yes, but doesn't he speak to something true that is not necessarily at all fundamental uh, uh, fundamental uh, fundamentalism, um, as um, when uh, examples that come to up for me here are, are usually interpersonal, right? How there is a moment in a friendship, in a dialogue, where we would say, "I know." Um, we don't say it, right? We just feel we know that the other understands me. We know about this being together. We know that this is a true moment, right? That there's something genuine, that this is a genuine, true moment. It's a very fragile knowing. It is a silent knowing. It's not the majestic knowing of of the religious fundamentalist. And I think this, this in 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 the in my better hearing and and reading of Heidegger, this knowing is at play as well, a fragile knowing, because uh, he what he maintains, which we also need to uh, um, uh, think about, that for Heidegger there is no truth without errancy, ever. There is never a pure moment of truth. There is always errancy. Errancy that has to do with being called to 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 specific relations. Um, errancy that has to do uh, with with kind of getting getting astray. Yeah. So there is always errancy. Um, so I th- we should then, if we want to follow that thought understand that in this knowing also remains the sense of of errancy, right? Of perhaps not hearing quite right, Um, perhaps drifting off to somewhere else which doesn't quite have to do with with what is going on um, um, at a certain moment. So there is an ambiguity, but there's nothing clean in Heidegger. There's nothing clean in Heidegger, but really reading Heidegger means sustaining this, I think, this ambiguity. Yeah. Not just saying, oh, all is good with Heidegger and trying to purge him from from uh, um, from uh, the darker sides of his life, uh, nor is it uh, uh, 
is, is the answer just, you know, saying, well, we don't read Heidegger anymore because he was a, a Nazi, period. Yeah. Really thinking with Heidegger means uh, staying with this very difficult ambiguity where one feels at the same time sometimes elevated, sometimes perhaps repelled, right, um, with deep perplexities, with deep questioning, and then again with the sense of, wow, he had something to say. Yeah, that kind of, yeah, that was a lot. So uh, thank you for that uh, answer. Um, moving along, in the wake of these writings here that you've been discussing, Heidegger would eventually move into what some would argue was the final stage of his intellectual development, particularly with his thoughts on the fourfold or his meditations on the thing. Uh, And obviously that's a whole other book or episode, but I want to close by asking how this period you've covered seems to function as a sort of transitional period between his earlier work exemplified by Being in Time and those later essays and seminars. So how do the poetic writings here work to deconstruct the limitations of his earlier project and set him up to eventually turn towards releasement into the fourfold? Yes. So (laughs) Heidegger always thinks back uh, to being in time. It's interesting, right? He always... He always has to reinterpret what he said there, uh, what he could, or maybe what he couldn't quite say um, there. Um, so, one even just in this period that I look at. So these are called in, in German. They call these uh, the Seinsgeschichtliche Abhandlungen, which is something like the, the, the treatises on on the historicality of of being or being in its historicality. Um, that there is a shift that I also addressed in the middle of them. So let's say if we go to being in time, uh, the project of being in time goes much further than the book being in time. Right? The project of being in time was also to think being as such. And there was at a certain point uh, to be a shift from the analysis of, of human being, of Dasein, and in, in, in the temporality um, and as which our being is discovered, there was to be the shift, the turn to the temporality of being as such. And so in contributions, then, the attempt is made precisely to speak not starting with human being, but out of this exposedness, this fundamental exposedness to being as such, being that, 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 that happens uh, properly as, as withdrawal. So, and then we saw that there are certain phases from a certain uh, Nietzschean pathos, from a language of withstanding the withdrawal, um, to this shift that happens right around the war, which I find really very interesting. Right? So this, and this shift in, in a thinking that last, lets machination pass by. And one is to think that this happens as world war rages over, over Europe yeah? and, and people are getting um, killed. Um, and there is... So there, there opens, as I said, this other attunement. The event is, is perhaps the, the book of the furthest down going, right? as, as I like to, 
to call it, right? the whole movement of down going into this concealed, unsayable dimension um, of being um, uh, that is, it tries to, to speak of in, in exposure, in, in, in exposure to it. Um, but there is at the same time, uh, um, which I also trace in my book, in intensification of thinking in the simultaneity of being and beings. Okay, what does that mean? Now, if we go back to uh, being and time, one can read that book almost structurally. And people start reading being and time. So there's the ontological dimension and then there's the ontic, right? And the ontological somehow is more important than the ontic. So the ontological would have to do with a fundamental understanding of being, of structures of being, whereas the ontic is just how this plays out, right? One forgets, though, that ontology itself, as it is carried out, is ontic. So in contributions, then, he tries to think more radically uh, uh, in the merging of being and beings. So to speak, so to speak, um, in authenticity, from authenticity. Um, but you can still see there's still a little bit of leftovers of a structural thinking in contributions, right? Um, which you can see um, in the text on the origin of the work of art that uh, many people are more familiar with and that is far more accessible than contributions, um, where he speaks of how the, the work of art opens up, right, the strife, of world and earth. But then he says, well, but the strife of world and earth is rooted in the primordial strife, which is the strife of truth, of unconcealing concealment. Yeah? And so there's a kind of a structural thinking. We have unconcealing concealment, then how this, this, this happens then in the strife of world and uh, worth, sorry, earth and world in a being, a work of art, in a in that. But, but it is here the work of art that holds open that space uh, of, of being. So we find a little bit of that, uh, a, a little bit of structural thinking. Now, as he moves on, he tries to, to, to get rid more and more of that. Um, it gets a little bit into, into technicality there, but um, as he then thinks, again, the event in, in, um, uh, on inception and, and the event in these later um, um, writings or collection uh, of writings, um, he brings, I think even, he, he describes the event <laughs> as the coming in between of being into the beingless. And the beingless, he says, is older than being somehow. Okay, what is this beingless? Beingless is like something in some way unthinkable. It is beings before they come to into being, before there is an is of this and that, right? So there is then a, a way in, in, which, in, which, in which the ontic and ontological dimensions or, or aspects of being um, move, got, get closer and closer and closer. Um, and so in some way, there's no other way to go than 
from from this ultimate descent in Heidegger, the dawning of the is before anything is, right? Before being uh, or as being um, erupts into the beingless, and 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 we come to to a, um, a realization of an is of this or that, of truth, uh, in fact, above all. So the next so the. The next phase, we have, we have one volume missing. It's called Stege des Anfangs. Um, it's one more volume, so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that. Um, and I'm curious about uh, whether there we will find him uh, developing this notion of, of the fourfold. But if you think of it, um, the fourfold, uh, let's say the thinking of the, the jug, right? The jug that gathers um, uh, mortals and divinities, um, sky, earth and sky. The jug gathers by virtue of its emptiness, not by its walls. So these, what I think what we learn from these poetic writings is that the event is still there, right? But it becomes the event of the worlding of the world, the event of the fourfold. And uh, um, he still speaks out of this, this sense of being that he develops um, in, these, uh, in these meditations, in these uh, hard-to-follow meditations of um, 1941 and, and 42. So in that sense, um, I think they give us another access to this thinking of the fourfold. Um, and um, and show how how the the kind of a certain attunement in which he he then thinks things or attempts to think um, is uh, found precisely um, um, already here during World War Two, which is really strange if you think about it. Yeah, thank you for trying to kind of draw that bridge for us. Um, so. We're nearing an hour, so as a final question, uh, we always like to give uh, guests a chance to plug any potential future projects. So what, if anything, are you working on now? Uh, my next book's not on Heidegger. Um, my next book uh, is on um, Suke. Um, and I take as a starting point um, Aristotle's uh, Psyche, uh, which basically means the the life um, of living beings. So um, I want to trace a certain historical trajectory, um, which I call the disappearance of soul, um, which traces how in in Aristotle the soul is still is the soul is the life not only of humans, it's the life of animals, of plants, of everything living, of the elements. And how then the notion of psyche gets reduced to human consciousness in modernity, and we start thinking of soul as human interiority. And in the second part of my project, I want to open up uh, again this notion of of uh, psyche beyond uh, the human. And uh, Merleau-Ponty will be useful to me. Nancy, who has a beautiful encounter with Aristotle, will also be um, important for me. It kind of relates. It's of course. It's even though I will not uh, write, uh, especially of Heidegger. It does relate to Heidegger in some way because one of the ways in which I de depart from Heidegger is is that I want to let me say pluralize Dasein. 
Heidegger always thinks uh, Dasein from within, from within uh, an an experience of their being. But what happens if if we understand Dasein as as a their being, not just of of humans, but of whatever there is, and to think that not in, in a certain, in a plurality, so that things eventuate, things happen, things have their temporality, right? Their ways of unfolding that is unique to them. And at the same time, I want to maintain interconnected. Uh, so my next book will wants to look especially at, at the way living, various living beings happen. How do we think this temporalizing of living beings beyond just the human? Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to look forward to that. So in the meantime, Daniela Vallega-Noy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much.